Welcome back to Kafaro Cast, everyone. We have a uh, genius in the building today. <laughs> it's me, actually. We've got Bill from Iron Will Outfitters and Broadheads. Is it Iron Will Outfitters? Is that what you call it? Uh, yeah, Iron Will Outfitters. There that's uh, our company name. Yeah. You know, we pretty much just go by Iron Will, Iron Will Broadheads. Yeah. Actually, I, wanted say, to be, I wanted to be very precise. I actually got into an argument with a guy that I was calling it Iron Will Broadheads, and he was saying Outfitters, and I'm like, maybe I just call it Iron Will Broadheads, but it, then I looked, and it does say Iron Will Outfitters. <laughs> I was like, shit. That's our official company name, yeah. but we pretty much just say Iron Will Broadheads. That's our products. So, But yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah. what the, It's been almost a year, I guess, since the last time you were on here, and I think at that time we were going over front of center and all the other debacle of three to one ratios and which I'm sure we'll talk about some today, the different, uh, the different broadhead building types and everything else and the single bevel and, and everything. Um, I will have to say, I'm not a fan of single bevel. I know that there seems to be like a huge, uh, uh, kind of a push for that since the, the Ashby is what did it, isn't it? Isn't kind of Ashby the one that got that carried away or going? Yeah, he, he said a single bevel was better for than a double bevel for penetration. You know, a lot of a lot of his tests were very close range, like ten yards or so on on big dead animals with uh, with traditional bows. Yeah, um, yeah, single bevel versus double bevel. I've done some testing in the past, and I'm actually making some more blades so I can do like a better apples to apples comparison of the two, just pushing them through things and measuring the force. What I've seen with a single bevel is you get you get some rotation to it um to me that actually decreases penetration because now you've using some of the energy to to twist and torque and um yeah i don't see i don't see a big difference in it but to me i actually like double bevel better for getting for being able to grind both sides and get a really sharp edge a durable edge i was gonna say i like double bevel because it rednecks can sharpen it uh single bevels harder but in the uh redneckometer test which was um an arrow taped to a basically two by four in a, in a weight scale um, and then pushing it through hide. Mm-hmm. There was no difference between double and single bevel, just hand pushing it down, right? Just okay. on top. Um, you know, it was, uh, you know, like five pounds of pressure to, to go through roughly um, on a single or double. I don't think one was better than the other or worse on the initial hide penetration. I just know that one of them for me is a hell of a harder to sharpen than the other one, which is the single bevel. It's harder to field sharpen for me than the single bevel, I guess, yeah. than the double. Single bevel seems to be more of a trad thing anyway, huh? Yeah, that, yeah. well, I definitely say that. I mean, if you asked pick out 30 22 year old kids i don't know that they know the difference um between a double i don't know you talk to more guys do you talk a lot of guys too i don't know that they know a difference between double and single bevel shoot a compound well you know there's there's a following of guys that have just read ashby and want to do it everything everything he says so you know there's some single bevel guys from that and, and so i'm trying to get a little more scientific data to just compare the two but from what i've seen personally i don't i don't see uh an advantage i think i like double bevel better i think there's more advantages to that yeah i i um with with the amount of stuff I've shot, I cannot say in great like good conscience if someone asked me. Of course, this is while you're on, so don't get mad at me. That you could say one is technically better than the other. Um, meaning, 
noticeably. I couldn't say ones like, oh my God, you have to have this one over this one. They all perform pretty damn good. I think it's really more longevity and, and uh, sharpenability, edge retention, things like that, where I, I'm not going to bring up, um, well, I will back here. Um, <laughs> Definitely could hear You know, that. when you got an aluminum ferrule and then you have a, a blade that chinks uh, really bad. Um, I had that chink on a leg bone. Um, you know, I, okay. I, I stick pretty tight up in the, the pocket in that golden triangle. And uh, you hit the leg bone sometimes, specifically with a stick bow. And uh, I had one come off almost a half inch long and probably an eighth inch deep. Just okay. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> but that's a steel thing. But again, as far as like, you know, just zipping through animals, I don't know that I could really say, oh, my God, you know, this one's on live animals and everything else. It's pretty hard to you can't mimic that. Right. Everything's different. And right. I shot um, actually my my eight point I shot in uh, Oklahoma's with your broadhead was a dull one. Um, I didn't mean to do that. And uh, it killed it. Right. I mean, it didn't bleed quite as well. I had shot a buck in the neck the day before. And you know how you come back and clean everything. And yeah. Like a dumb shit, I reloaded the same <laughs> broadhead. And uh, kind of what was amazing, I'd like to get your take on this. When it came through, it was moving. So there was a lot of muscle movement, which I don't think people take into consideration can lose penetration as the, the legs and shit are moving. Right. But I zipped through the animal. I, I went through both scapulas. It didn't bleed a great amount, but it also went straight through the neck bone of a buck the night, the day before, right? So... It 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 had uh, the back was sharper than the front because I had buried it into the neck into the basically uh, the the, the boniest point of the vertebrae. The bleeder is what bled. the The main blade didn't. It bled at the main blade as well, kind of doing an autopsy. The first half of the broadhead was relatively dull from that from the bone, and I mean we're talking a twenty foot shot at full draw, just crushed it right, and it broke the the actual. Uh, vertebrae uh cracked it okay <laughs> and so it was easier to pull out and cleaned it and then the buck ran and it died and it bled some but it bled more internally than externally and i also when i hit it we're already drifting down like rabbit holes here but i'd like to get your opinion being that the the onside leg was forward and the offside leg was back and as i shot it it's rotating right the legs as it's moving I think one of the reasons it didn't bleed as much, and this happened with Tom Clum's elk, was it's plugging the hole where that entry is is getting covered when it takes off. So it's only opening as the legs take off. And I and I, but I still zipped through both sides, and it died. I was pretty amazed by that I got through the both scapulas, um, even with a relatively dull head. Now I would say with your head going through normal stuff. You can probably shoot an animal three or four times for goals. Is that realistic? Probably so. Um, I've I've done it through a couple animals a number of times where I shot through once. I couldn't see any dings in it. I spun it, spun through, could shave hair, just put it right back in the quiver and shot through another animal with it. Um, it it really depends on what you hit, and a lot of it's what you hit on the other side of the animal. Mm-hmm. You know, I've my elk I shot last year um, just zipped right through. I mean, it was. You know, 40 yard broadside walk in, zzz, just, you know, zipped right through. That animal didn't know what hit it, went a little further, and I zipped another one through it, and, and it died. And, um, but it, it you know, it kind of depends on 
if you're hitting gravel on the other side or not. But yeah, but a, a couple animals is pretty typical, I'd say. Yeah, I, the neck bone slowed it down as it should, right? I zipped it literally from me to the corner of that wall standing up, and uh, the only thing I could see was its neck, and uh, you could hear it crunch when it hit. The bleeders, I still have that broadhead. I'll give it to you. Um, the bleeder's still sharp even after going through the second buck. Now, keep in mind, I'm an idiot, and I shouldn't even admit that I did this, but I just screwed everything on, and the problem was is I touched the back of the broadhead, the back of the blade. I didn't touch the whole thing. And so kind of where it stopped at the neck, that bone had dulled a bit of the first part, but not the back. I'm guessing here is why I reloaded it. I'm, I'm trying to give myself an excuse of why I loaded <laughs> it back in the quiver. The, the bleeders were fine. Um, but again, uh, it's a testament. You figure that was a 220-pound deer or so um, through both scapulas out of a stick bow at maybe eight yards. It was fairly close. Um, the arrow didn't quite go all the way through when I say it zipped through the feathers hung up on the offside scapula, but I was trying to lead it. And what I was amazed watching it in, in, in my mind's eye, why, cause as it's going on, when those legs shifted back, that's like eight inches of movement, right? That's eight inches of hole being plugged. That's eight inches of shoulder moving back to forth, whether it was standing and I just zipped a hole through it. The hole's the hole, right? You know what I mean as far as, in this case, there's a lot of shit shifting back and forth. So if you put the scapulas, that front shoulder, to where they would be when we were kind of doing the autopsy, standing vertical, that hole was completely, they weren't all lining up, obviously, because everything was shifting. I have to guess that that has some serious issue on penetration when that kind of shit goes on. And that's hard to test. It's easy to test something hanging and not moving. Yeah, I've seen that. Um, I've seen that a few times where I, I pass through and go by the opposite side leg and it's moving. It'll actually break the arrow in half after the broadhead passes through and you'll end up with some of the arrow inside just because of that leg moving back. Back, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you think that that affects much penetration when, when a lot of different dynamics are going on? Or like a tensed up animal kind of? What's that? Like tensed up muscle? Yeah, yeah, as yeah. As opposed to like calm feeding. It, I think it makes a huge difference because you think about uh, you ever get pricked with a needle and somebody's calm and the needle goes right in when you're getting your shots and then a guy tightens up his ass cheek. That needle doesn't go in. <laughs> yeah, steroids. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up, Frank. And, uh, <laughs> but you talk about, uh, you know, with an arrow, you would think movement and tense muscle is going to slow down some. Um, and I only bring this up because uh, I it was with your head. Uh, I shot the the first buck and uh which was a big deer and i hit liver lung and it ran off and then when he went long story short walked back up to it thinking it was dead and it stood up it didn't know i was there it heard another buck moving around and i and i hit it i didn't use the same arrow twice i didn't go find that one till later um and then that one went um right into the vertebrae and then like a dummy loaded it and shot another Buck, but I had shot multiple other animals with your head and still sharp, but I didn't hit the massive amount of bone that I hit. Usually, we never did find yours, did you? From last year? Yeah. Because mm. he shot he shot his, was that 40? Yeah, 40. He, he didn't run it, ring it all the way through, but three quarters of the body, it went through right in front of the, the rear were, quarter. And, yeah, went right in front of the rear quarter and came out the neck. Yeah, and, and we you didn't ever find that. No. Um, but I mean, as far as penetration goes, um, and I think that the, the muscle tensing up would seem to have. I was kind of curious what your thoughts on that were. Yeah, you know, I definitely agree that um, muscles tensing up or shoulders moving as you're shooting, it, 
it definitely can reduce penetration because it's going to start, you know, if they're moving quick enough, it can be pushing on the arrow as it's, as it's going partway through. And, and you lose some of that momentum driving that broadhead through. And, you know, our, our broadhead in general is, um, you know, overkill for deer a lot. It's, it's going to zip through there. But I think when you get these other things happening, like you're shooting close to those shoulders, things are moving. Um, it's or, nice or you to shoot have a dull that. broadhead. Or you shoot a dull broadhead. <laughs> um, you know, my last, last couple of mule deer I've shot have actually been um, quartering on. And, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend this for everybody. It depends on your setup. But I've just found that, you know, frontal or quartering on um, a deer-sized animal, I mean, it, it's going through there with, you know, I shoot 70-pound bow and about 500-grain arrow. And, you know, when, on those last two, one of them I just went inside the shoulder blade and zipped through. The other one I ended up putting just square right through the shoulder blade. But mm-hmm. on a deer-sized animal, it's going through there and still getting a pass-through shot. Yeah, I, I, um, I, the knuckle might be, that's about the only, if you're way back right into the knuckle attachment, the socket, that might slow something down. But I've seen guys even go through that on deer. I don't know about elk. I've never seen that happen. But I think, um, that one guy that hit that one on a quartering two, like really like an angle you probably shouldn't shoot. It wasn't, it wasn't facing. I'm a, I'm a cornering two facing guy. It was almost, the exact opposite of the one spot you would say never shoot and he snuck it in the front of the offside shoulder and hit the socket on the offside if that makes any sense poor shot he blew the socket out though um i mean he literally detached that socket this is with your head um which is why i bring it up but that that broadhead was buried in the ball like all the way to the bleeder. So it must have just force popped it out. It's no different than I would guess. I'm not a doctor dislocating a human shoulder. It's the same principle. It popped it out of the hole. When he pulled it out, I thought he was full of shit. And then he showed me a photo and sure as hell it was buried into that ball when he took it apart. So that's pretty good penetration. I mean, I don't know how, I mean, I don't know if you could quantify the mass or the amount of momentum it takes to, to do that, but it was pretty crazy. Um, it went all the way up to the bleeder. So. <laughs> Yeah, really the my main objective originally was to and you know, I had a had a broadhead failure um where I, I hit the shoulder blade of an elk. And so my original purpose with this is to make a broadhead that if you shot a little too far forward, you know, broadside, hit that shoulder blade of an elk, that it was gonna pass through that, get through the vitals, um, and hopefully get you a pass through shot. And I think this really has achieved that. I've had probably over 30 people now tell me they've got pass-through shots on elk with one or both shoulder blades. And, you know, the, the strength of the blade has a lot to do with it. But what I found, too, is um, the sharpness and edge retention is, is a big deal. You know, you asked me about single versus double bevel. I think that's a pretty small factor compared to actually how sharp is the blade and how, how long does it retain that edge going through hide, rib bones, shoulder blades, things like that. I'd, I'd agree with that. Um... I, I I definitely you're trying to counter whatever of uh, of single and double bevel as whereas as well as three blade three to one ratio type heads. If I if you had to make me bet, you know, part of my body or my daughter or something, I couldn't pick one that was like a percentage that made a huge difference for penetration other than what they all should have, which is really really sharp right that's another one and then yeah they have blade retention for sure but i think um where people get kind of this is off the mass amount of questions we get um sometimes people forget accuracy because of they they put maybe foc or momentum 
in front of actually being able to hit what they aim at. Um, meaning they're kind of, it's Gillingham would say they're preparing to be shitty is I think how he puts it. <laughs> um, which is, it's, it's, it's important to obviously to have good momentum, but accuracy wise, um, testing and everybody else kind of pestering you, have you guys found as anybody, has anything come, uh, any fixed blade, um, like been above and beyond where they're like, yeah, this one's just more accurate or have you found that most guys are saying yours is the most accurate fixed blade? Obviously that's a biased opinion as I'm asking you, but I already know the answer. So what kind of feedback are you getting? Yeah, we're, we're hearing that, you know, for, I used to say it, they'd shoot well for everybody, but there's always that, that guy that doesn't have his bow tuned or whatever. But I think, um, we're hearing by an overwhelming majority that our, our broadheads shoot really well for them. Um, most guys are saying, you know, the best fixed blade they've shot. Of course, I'm, you know, I'm biased, but that was a lot of um, what I worked on in the design over the years as well. I actually started with a longer broadhead, um, really going just for low force, max penetration. And, but I also wanted to be able to take 60 yard shots on mule deer, things like that. So um, it just has a lot to do with surface area and then, you know, a bit on the blade design, um, do some, do some, um, computer simulations of flow over the blades, try and reduce the drag. Um, and, but a lot, you know, a lot of it's just surface area and ours is a fairly compact blade. So it's, it's designed for good long range flight. And that's, that's a difference. I think with some guys that are going really heavy on broadheads are really high on FOC. Um, if you're just shooting 10 or 20 yards, it's not going to matter a whole lot. But I think if you're getting, if you're trying to make those 50 plus yard shots, that's when, um, you know, broadhead design matters more and not getting too heavy of an arrow, not too high FOC, I believe, as well. Yeah, happy medium without going back to beating that dead horse. Um, I, I never really paid attention to my FOC. It's just kind of a byproduct of whatever it turned out to be. But um, oh, have you guys been to Feral yet? I, I mean, I know I have not been one of your Ferals, but have you had anyone, have you had someone send in a bent Feral? We've had two bent ferals sent in that I know of. So we have, we have a lifetime, <laughs> we have a lifetime uh, warranty. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, you bend it or break it, we replace it. And the only two we've had sent in were both deep six. Um, they're both shot with, you know, carbon arrows and, and hit inserts. And so, you know, at deep six, that, that shank is um, a smaller diameter than the standard. Just by the, just by geometry, it's going to be half as strong as a standard um, feral that shank part um their standard ones no we haven't don't had get any excited frankie keeps talking about shank <laughs> <laughs> i um i i'm not a deep six fan i'm not gonna lie um i i like fm or excuse me i like axis i'm not a big deep six guy um just for that fact hopefully i'm not gonna get yelled at by too many people for saying this it's just the the concept behind it a, a skinnier shaft is great the weak uh I've lost it. What are you thinking, Frank? <laughs> Skinnier shaft. Um, just kidding. <laughs> I've lost not with a deep six at all, but with a couple other arrow manufacturers and component systems. I, I hang in the shoulder. I hang up into that golden triangle. And if your momentum outweighs your um, components, it the component broke um, and it should have went through. I'm not. I'm not blaming everything on the you know maybe i should have snuck back but when you're used to hanging in that pocket sometimes you might be a couple inches over 
but I'd already, I always had zipped through it. And this wasn't with deep six, um, with that deep six system. And I know yours is, it's super tough, your broadhead for the deep six system, but even still you are weakening the system. There's no way around it from a redneck perspective. It's, it's weaker. And I, that's one reason I don't like it. Is that why you started making the footer to, to help with durability? Yeah, it is. Um, and, and I should say those two deep six that bent, um, you know, one of them was it passed through the animal and then hit a boulder. And the other one, I think, was just a straight rock shot. So um, <laughs> <laughs> we call those outliers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but we've had a lot of rock shots with our standard heads, too. And then the ferals survive. You know, we'll get a little smashed in. You get those tip, every day typically. at my house, winging them up under the hillside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, we started making some components. What I was doing for myself, just I was doing a lot of broadhead testing where I was shooting into heavy bones and, you know, other, other objects. And what I was seeing is occasionally I would, I would uh, break out the end of that carbon. Um, you know, I like the, I like the hit system because the broadhead aligns, you know, that, that shank of the broadhead, um, that cylinder there is the datum surface of the broadhead. Everything is turned to that very accurately. And so if I can locate that diameter right to the ID of the arrow, you know, the idea of the arrow um, is very tightly controlled in diameter, and that's you know, the most tightly controlled surface. So you, you buy um, a high-end arrow with a thousandth of an inch um, straightness and then put the broadhead, align it directly to it. There's no components adding tolerances in there, so I know it's going to spin really true. Um, the negative, though, is that with the hit insert down in there, um, whether it's aluminum or brass or whatever, and then just the carbon, now when you take an impact, if you're driving straight back into that, you – you're going to crush a little of that carbon. You're going to maybe maybe damage those threads of those materials. Um, and if you get a side load on, on say, a heavy bone, you can start pushing out or breaking out the side. So I started making these hardened steel sleeves that go over um, and also have a little flange on the end that adds a lot of strength as well. I started making those myself. been using them for a few years just for a lot of broadhead testing. Guys were seeing them, wanted to know if they could buy some. I decided to come out with them. And... I, you know, in Deep Six, I had gone to Deep Six a few years back, then went back to the, to the 204 ID um, just to get more strength. And now that I'm, and now I'm testing both, I'm testing the 204 ID and the, and the 166 Deep Six. I really think in the Deep Six side, having that hardened steel one inch um, sleeve, that really, that really improves the strength at the end of the arrow. Now, I don't, I, yeah, as I say that, I don't want everybody to sell their Deep Six. This is, for me, um, if it's a factor I can take out, the pros of the deep six don't outweigh the cons. And I guess being more honest maybe than I should be, good Lord, I don't even know if you want to answer this. Do you think a deep six, the pro of a deep six outweighs the con? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm getting at, and Isaac's going to probably well, hate think, me. I think just the biggest thing about deep six is the lack of components. And broadheads, I mean, I guess, I mean, that as well. There's two major flaws to the system. Let's say you have a 6.5 Creedmoor and you show up in Alaska and the flight loses your rounds. What are you going to do? You're mm. surely not going to go buy 6.5 Creedmoor at Walmart. Maybe. Show up with, well, maybe now it's getting better. 
are you going to show up to a local archery range that's going to have deep six broadheads? Ooh, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Maybe not, right? I mean, and, and, and Bill, you're smarter than Frank and I combined by probably a multiplier of pi. <laughs> what um, am I thinking right now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what am I going to think in five minutes? Um, so when people ask me about that system, I'm like, hey, it makes sense. You're going to have le- you know skinnier shaft, less wind drift. Um, alignment, the smaller, you know, from a redneck perspective, the smaller and smaller you get that, the more chance you have of it being aligned, right? If you have all kinds of parts and pieces, you're, the more shit you add on or components, you're the better chance you have of it not staying in alignment. So you have a very small system, very a system that is very easy to stay in uh, alignment. But how much extra penetration will you get from a skinny shaft? How much losing that durability is it worth it? So, I mean, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, you know, I've spent a lot of time, uh, spent a lot of time thinking about this. You know, gone back and forth. When I shot them a few years ago, my conclusion at the end was there's just not enough benefits to outweigh the strength thing. And but you know, I've, I've put a lot of thought and work into it since then. That, you know, the issues with the deep six or really the one six six ID arrow in general is is either you use the deep six and you have that smaller shank which is half as strong, or you use a, an outsert or a half out. And when you use use those, um, you know, either way you're adding tolerances. A half out, you're you've got some clearance to the ID of the arrow, and then you've got some tolerance between that that shank and the the ID hole where the broadhead's going to go. You've got some clearance added in there, um, so there's some tolerances that are going to increase, you know, your run out of that tip mm-hmm. um, of that broadhead. And then you also have kind of this lever arm out in front of there. When you you hit a side load on it, all of a sudden it's going to bend or break things easier because you've got this lever kind of you're you're cranking on it with there's a lot of negatives to it the benefits are smaller diameter you know less wind drift um a little better penetration although i don't i don't know if you get a lot you know i think you get i saw a good improvement from 246 down to 204 204 down to 166 you get a little more um I think on, I don't know on an animal how much that shaft matters i think it matters that the shaft is smaller than your broadhead but by a lot um so uh, you know i'm just kind of talking out loud here the 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 negatives i was finding um i thought well what if i tried to fix those negatives by having you know a hardened steel hit insert a hardened steel sleeve on it um you know and then our broadhead ferrules are are either hardened steel or grade five titanium trying to make everything as strong as possible to try and balance that out just so everybody understands i am leading up to that that you have fixed with what you've built problem you've there's still the issue of finding deep six compo- shit right <laughs> broadheads and points but right, right. you have a footer is it well not just a footer um let's discuss uh bring this into the hvac category from a standard footer you just have a round say aluminum arrow right that's what most everybody used forever right for those who know who a footer is all it is is you're taking, let's say, a carbon arrow, and you t- cut the OD of that carbon arrow. You find an aluminum arrow where the ID is the same, and then you glue that on the end to beef up the end of the arrow. And that works fairly well, but what you did above and beyond that, you went hard and stainless, but you also, which I didn't know if very many people knew that, and I'm glad you brought it up, when you have HVAC or if you have stamping done to certain things to build up rigidity, um, or structural integrity, you have a lip on yours, which actually adds even more structural integrity for not 
really as much maybe head on impact. And I'm, this isn't something Bill's told me I'd looking at it. It helps a lot more for side load impact as well, right? Right. It does. It, it adds. So if you just have a, if you just have a cylinder or a sleeve, you know, think about how easy it is to crush that versus if you not add a flange that comes in on it. It adds a lot of stiffness to the end. Right. Um, probably, probably double we'll or crush so. crush the middle of a pop can and crush the end. The end has a flange. Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. And so adding that flange adds strength also covers the end of the arrow so that when you're, you know, taking that impact, you're not, you're not pounding that carbon and pushing that in. Um, you know, with, if you've matched up a sleeve to that carbon, it's kind of sharing the load. But in this case, we have that flange covering the end of the, of the carbon. Um, you know, it adds that strength there too. Right, right. Most of the reason we're talking about this is people, you know, you learn a lot from it as people to try to help people understand because when you talk with a 246, uh, a big, what, what is considered a fat shaft now, which back, well, we're about the same. How old are you, Bill? Uh, 50. Okay, well, you got me by a few. Um, back in the day, a 246 was small. I mean, that that was not, a, I mean. That, right, I've that, got some 24, 13s. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what I used to shoot 27, 13, or 23, 17s, 25, 14s, 23, 15s. Frank, you know anything about that? I'm not good at math. <laughs> yeah, the, and, uh, the arrow diameter was so big, the, the ferrule would actually taper down from the arrow down to your broad head. <laughs> it, it was crazy, like big Lincoln logs and had great success, but a lot of that sex, success was momentum, right? That's where the, right. which where you're, you're lobbing logs. There was no way around it. I shot 2219s for a long time, and that was a skinny back then, was a 2219. So the 246s and ACCs came out. But a lot of that's momentum, you know, trying to make people understand or not make people explain people like how all this came down. When you went to a 246 carbon, you lost a lot of weight. You gained speed. So guys that were, I don't know how many people you talked to about bow hunting back in the day, but you had a guy in, let's say, 1996 that shot a 2514 or a 2315 for hunting. And then in 99 was shooting a carbon. And his penetration went to fuck all, right? It just left the building, right? He's he's now hitting animals that he used to zip through. Well, it's momentum, right? The arrow, the carbon arrows were like 7.8, 8.2 grains per inch. What's a 2315, 11.8 or something? I don't know, 12.1? I, I could it, tell They're you. heavy as shit, right? So that was momentum, you know, winning the day. Well, then as time went, has gone on, you have all of it. You have the skinny shaft, you have momentum, you have good components. So what we had, and I'm, I'm relatively young compared to others, what you had in like the late 80s, mid 90s was not a lot. And compared to now, most state-of-the-art shit on the planet. And so picking a little bit of fly shit out of Chile here, if a 2315 had a, an 18 or 23 grain aluminum insert, a deep six is probably with your system significantly stronger than the end of that 2315's aluminum 28 grain, 23 grain insert. Right. I don't know if I made any sense of that. So a lot of this, we're really just truly driving a semi truck through the drive through to order a cheeseburger. It doesn't make that much difference because what we have today, the bad stuff is probably a lot better than the good stuff from 1990, 1995. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, for sure. I think, I think, uh, yeah, whenever people went to carbon arrows, very light arrows, high speed, you know, it, there's a couple things going on there. Your, your bow is less efficient. So, you know, your bow, your bow is noisier. As the arrow leaves your bow, it, it has less, uh, 
less energy just because of efficiency. And then at that high velocity, you know, drag is proportional to velocity squared. So that high velocity- My head hurts. No, I'm just kidding, go ahead. It's a, <laughs> so it's shedding a lot of that velocity, a lot of that energy out there. Whereas a heavier arrow, you're, you're not losing that much. Um, and, you know, really the, the carbon hunting arrows of today are, are thick, are thick walled. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a fairly strong arrow. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, a lot of what I say when I say oh, this isn't strong enough, um, it's 95% kinda... <laughs> of the time it is, right? Yeah. It's, but, you know, I'm trying to go for the worst case situations. What if you hit the leg bone? Things like that. And that's what I'm trying to, as I say, talking kind of, you know, trash a little bit about deep six. It's a hell of a lot better than what a lot of people killed with for many, many years. And I will be the first to say I haven't lost a lot of animals, but the ones I have lost, very few are from, I can think of 10 off the top of my head, six were mechanical error, right? Like six were something failed me. A lot of it was components, um, you know, meaning whether it was my fault or not, whether it was like, you know, a, um, a broadhead basically imploding or exploding on impact, um, components snapping as it hit something solid that the momentum would have carried it. So I don't think you're going overboard with anything you're doing because until that happens to you and you're about ready to cry, you really, you know, you kind of have a, a, that's that uh, total re-gear assessment, sell everything you own and buy new shit and basically get divorced to get something fixed because one of mine was a mule deer in the cliffs and I hit it in the shoulder and uh, looked like pulled a Cody Covey, arrow went in about that far and just stopped. Now that wasn't a mechanical error. That was human error. That was me thinking I could get through that with the state of the art axe through an animal light carbon and it stopped it. And I talked taking shots many times before with the 2317 and just zipped through that high scapula. Yeah. It wasn't exactly where I wanted to aim or hit, but I wasn't a whole lot worried thinking I'd go right through it. And that arrow fucking stopped. (laughs) I mean, stopped. And I'm like, so, you know, you take into consideration you want good momentum, right? You want good components. And Ashby talks about some of these things. But there is a certain point where I think, you know, people do need to, you know, realize that everything does have to kind of even out. You you know, you want your skill level to keep up with that, your accuracy, things like that. But you definitely don't want to be failing. You don't want your accuracy level to be super high and have shit components. And then you don't want to have the best components in the world and you can't hit Frank from here. I think with what you're doing, though, I'm a big fan of Axis. Um, I The 204 with your system is what I suggest to just about anybody asking about Axis over um, the, the, you know, the super skinnies when you start to, just cause the super skinnies can be, can be a problem. They can be a problem fletching. They can be a lot of problems where I like the little bit bigger standard axis shaft. Um, I, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, you kind of were diving in it earlier. Yeah. I, I, I agree. hold a gun to your head right now. What would you pick? <laughs> <laughs> well, what I've been using the last two years is a Easton axis, 300 spine, our 25 grain hardened steel hit insert, 25 grain hardened steel impact collar, um, S125 head. Um, that's, that's bomb proof in my opinion. Um, shot 10 animals or so with it in the last couple of years. And, you know, I, I love that setup. Um, I am setting up and testing, or I have set up and tested carbon injections right now with also with our 25 grain um, hardened steel deep six hit insert, 25 grain collar. Um, and now we're, I've had to make, um, field points because there aren't any, you yeah. know, 
that have the right <laughs> time. Skinny little guys. So uh, I've made hardened steel um, field points at 100 grain, 125 and 150 to match our collars. Um, so I, I've been shooting those two side by side all summer. Um, I'm trying to put a little more science to the wind drift thing. I don't see a lot, a lot of difference. And I, I've put the science to it with the shooting machine. Human, you can't tell, in my opinion, at 80. You just you can't see a difference. Apples being apple, same FOC, same fletch, same everything. I can't outshoot one to the other. I can barely out be, even see a 246 at 80. Um, with a shooting machine, you can see... I'm two to three inch drift uh, from a from a 204 to a, to a skinny. Um, is that about what you're finding, or have you gotten that far yet? Yeah, a couple inches at a hundred yard difference, I'd say. And and you know, a lot of it is that it's it's just hard to shoot in the wind, anyway. Yeah. So I try to get <laughs> I try to get you know back, almost shoot inside, um, so I have very little wind on me. But I think the bigger factor is if you're actually shooting in a crosswind, it's hard to hold steady enough yeah. to make a difference. Right? Yeah. Well, and, and, and I, again, we're bringing all this up for all the, the different questions. You, you've got a big brain on you, so I'm glad you're here where you can bounce off stuff Frank and I talk about that I haven't tested or you can run through a, a computer program as well as test. Guys that want to shoot 246, I, I'm like, dude, it's, it's not – because th- things get put on such a pedestal online now where you're almost it, a 246 is antiquated and worthless anymore. And I'm like, guys, it, 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 that's just, it's not that bad. It's not that horrible. But I can't say in good conscience there is no difference because there is a difference. Um, you know, when you start getting out there. It, 246 it, is what, 6 millimeter? Is that what? Yeah, yeah okay. I was going to yeah. say, you, you when you... Layman's terms here. It's a yes, standard it's, size arrow. <laughs> it's actually the other way around. The, the <laughs> 246 is the layman term, I think. But anyway, the millimeter thing didn't pop up until Easton. Oh, really? Hell no. No one talked about millimeters in the fucking 90s. <laughs> Damn Canadians. <laughs> tell, them, tell them, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Tell them. He's right. So it, it used to just be called a standard size arrow. Yeah. It, it would have an insert that, that went inside the the arrow diameter and would come all the way out to the end and have a little flange that went over the end, you know, like a standard insert. Yeah. So I, I, well, I kind of call them, or I think what, what a lot of people call them is like a standard size, a, a small and a micro. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the two, four, six or a six millimeter, that's a standard size arrow. Um, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, when I first shot the, the two Oh four versus the two, four, six, I was seeing more penetration on the two Oh four. But what I now realize is it depends a lot what you shoot into. Because if you shoot into, say, ballistic gel yeah. or a lot of targets where they're um, they're relying on shaft friction to yep. slow that down, if you just put a bigger um, field point on than your your shaft, all of a sudden you just got a bunch more penetration because um, it's it's kind of pushing that hole out before the shaft gets there and it's reducing the force there. Steel drum is what I was going to say is the same thing. If you shoot through steel drums, like this is back when 90-pound compound days, you get a skinny and you put a bigger a bigger field tip on it, your penetration has just gone up tenfold because you've just wallered out the hole for the rest of the shaft to fly through, where when you don't, as you just said, it's friction. Look at Frank. <laughs> friction the whole way through, which is it sounds like the same thing you found. So right. what's the best thing to test for penetration then? Well, you're gonna have to like actually shoot an Josh, animal. Yeah, well, <laughs> obviously, yeah. But like, what are you? What's the best, the most realistic? I saw like Josh Bomar shooting a, a fucking truck hood the other day or something. 
I think that might have been for the gram, but yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah, what do you, what do you what do you feel like is the best or most realistic? Like, is ballistic gel or uh, ballistic gel? No, not with arrows. It's the best medium to get an idea of what's. I think ballistic gel is the easiest to deal with as far as you're not destroying shit when you do it. It's easy to do slow mo, but I think as far as apples to apples against an animal, I I, I don't. You think like it shoot is. carcasses, like a pig or something, or. You know, that's probably the best. The problem is when you're trying to do apples to apples comparison, <laughs> you can never hit the same place with two different ones. So I, you know, I do things like, um, you know, I took a, a moose hide, um, a fresh moose hide, put it on a piece of, uh, of foam and just press through the moose hide. You know, that's got really thick, thick hair, thick hide and compared. Uh, that was pretty eye opening when I was looking yeah. at some, some uh, chisel point broadheads and some mechanical. You know, I was pushing through. I was using our S125 broadhead, pushing down through a moose hide, and I was getting maybe 12, 14 pounds. That's to go through the the hide plus a, an inch of a pretty dense, you know, rubbery type that's, foam. That's double a deer. That's at least. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. That thickness <laughs> is, is is pretty. Um, I don't know, eighth inch thick maybe. And that's that's pretty thick hide. And then I took. Um, I was having this discussion with Joe Rogan about mechanicals versus fixed, and I said, I'll, let me get you a little data here. <laughs> <laughs> and when I pushed that um, mechanical down through that hide, it actually um, built up to 160 pounds, and then started crushing the blocks I had below it. Yeah. So it pushed that hide all down through that foam. Um, in hindsight, I should, probably should have somehow held that foam so it couldn't have done that, but 160 pounds, and it didn't cut through the hide yet. It was. I was going to say, so on a deer hide on a kill zone, with a chisel tip, it was like 48 pounds to go through. That's a lot of, okay, so it was four to six on a fixed blade, on a good fixed blade. It was 40, I gotta look, it was 48 or, it was a fucking lot different (laughs) to get it to go through a deer hide. And I just rednecked it, two by four, duct taped an arrow to it, and then you just push down on the scale and you just watch the scale as it pops through. Probably much more redneck than what you did, but <laughs> he's just like it, a scientist. <laughs> again, as you're doing that, it might be a little bit more redneck, <laughs> slightly. But as you're doing that, you're kind of like, uh, and 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 then as you, um, for me, the big eye opener was going to a stick bow and zipping through everything. Not everything, but most everything with a stick, whop, you know, a whopping 180 feet per second. But I was shooting fixed blades, and I'm because I've been shooting mechanicals a lot and I shot fixed blades as well, but the amount of momentum a mechanical sucks out of your arrow is unbelievable. And, and But I it didn't matter to me because I shot a 550 grain arrow and 85, 90 pounds. So I was going to go through. The other issue though, shit snaps off a mechanical. Um, right. When we switched, remember how many we broke in the Reinhardt? Like, a lot, yeah, a lot I know of you're, you're kind of anti-mechanical, but... If you have an imperfection in a mechanical, it's not like you can shoot very many mechanicals multiple times. There's a couple good ones on the market. We would shoot, and it would break the blades off in a Reinhardt, just one shot. Think about that on an animal, and you clip a fucking rib cage or something, you're, you're definitely going to break it off. So not all mechanicals are, are made the same, and for most people, they don't have they didn't have the momentum I had and the weight behind it where I, I didn't have to worry about, you know, hitting a couple ribs and hit sticking one lung or, or whatever, where with a fixed blade, you don't have those issues. You're going to zip through. So this like the testing that you do, a lot of the scientific stuff or in the lab, I guess, quote unquote, a lot of this isn't done by other companies then I would assume, right? 
Not that I know of, no. I, I haven't seen any other companies do the data. Um, you know, it's it's a lot of, uh, you know, en- engineers cost money, right? And uh, I've spent a lot of years just engineering this kind of as a hobby over the years before I came out with it. So the average company is not going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars engineering time to do all this testing um, well, in, in general, you, I'd Most say. mechanical broadhead companies aren't because <laughs> they'll be unhappy. <laughs> yeah. um, and you're not – just saying this now, you're not going to hurt my feelings if we're talking about mechanicals. You throw it out there, but in, in my opinion, there are certain setups – that the, the the person should have well and we we recommend iron wheels and severs to a lot of people um three and three but you don't like mechanicals i don't think at all do you well so here's the <laughs> here's the problem with mechanicals um yeah it takes a lot of energy just to get through that hide and, and a rib and so maybe 10x now is that gonna is that gonna stop it right there it really depends on your setup and the animal I really don't like mechanicals for a moose or, or an elk, personally. Um, I just think, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of friends have failures where they thought it was a good shot and just that height or center rib or shoulder blade, something like that, um, will take them out. You know, I've been looking at them more the last couple of years. I've been getting them in and testing them so I could, you know, speak more accurately, not just from a scientific standpoint, but some actual data. Um, you should probably come out with one. Um, it, I, <laughs> enough people have bugged me to bug you about it. The, the, here, so here's my thing on mechanicals. Um, if you took, and I'll see if my, my percentage of redneck ingenuity here is correct. If you took every mechanical off the shelf right now, went to the store, and you set up some basic platform, right, of what it needed to pass muster, meaning edge retention, sharpness, durability, I would say 95% of the mechanicals would fail. Um, If you had realistic, not unfair um, curriculum for them to pass, I would say 95% would fail. What do you think? So what mechanical, when you're trying to get a two-inch cut, you need to have pretty thin blades to get down to 100 grain, which is what the biggest selling size is. So to have them that wide, they need to be pretty thin. When they're that thin, they're going to break pretty easy, especially if they're very hard. Yeah. So, so now they'll have, I've been measuring hardness on them and I'm getting 50, 46, 48 yeah. Rockwell C hardness. So, you know, talk to a, a blade maker, they wouldn't even consider that, you know, a blade mm-hmm. um, at that hardness. Um, a blade maker is going to try and get up that 58, 60, maybe Rockwell C. Um, and not to go into a lot of the science, but basically hardness um, will give you, be able to get a sharper edge and retain that edge better. Um, 60 Rockwell C will retain an edge way better than 55 or, or 50. If you're down that 46, 48, so those edges, just going through hide, they're pretty dull. Mm-hmm. Um, you go through a rib, um, it's not going to cut you afterwards. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's going to be tearing through. And they bend pretty easy. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was testing them through shoulder blades, all the, broad, all the mechanicals I tested either broke either broke one or two blades um, or they bent it over and there was no edge left to you, them. You totally weaseled your way around my question, though. Do you think that there would be a 95%, 90% attrition rate of if if you took your, your I hate to do the trad lab thing, uh, you and Cody should get together and geek out because you're, you're both we, very... We've talked on the phone a okay. couple times, yeah. <laughs> if you took a horizontal 
um, meaning if you put the broadhead down and whack it with a hammer to a certain poundage, okay, and after it bends or breaks, that's a fail. Then you take the beginning sharpness of the blade, not the end, just this, the beginning out the gate. That had to meet a curriculum, and then you had to have the after initial penetration through the hide had to meet another uh, curriculum or another standard. If you took that and then you took the ferrule, um, which is generally aluminum, and I'm not a huge fan of aluminum ferrules, but sometimes they're okay. I mean, they, they can do okay, but they're definitely weaker. And then how easy that aluminum ferrule bends. What would the attrition rate be on a fair testing for most mechanical broadheads out? And you can totally just say, I don't want to answer that. Well, it it would depend on where your levels are at, right? To, to the level I was trying to get to with... <laughs> it was zero? It would be zero. <laughs> yeah. It would be zero. Um, and then... If you know, if you compromise and say what'll well, do a good job on most animals, it's it's still a very small percent, I'd say. Yeah, and I I, I would have to say, you know, it, I I would say you're probably pretty freaking close if if you compromised a little to, to 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 what I was kind of setting it up, it it would be five percent. Which if it's you nail that down, that's one or two broadheads, not broadheads, because some companies offer fifteen different. This is one or two total broadheads, not broadhead manufacturers, which is pretty low. So, you know, as, as I would talk, guys would ask me, I'd be like, look, I'm compensating with momentum, knowing ahead of time that this thing has a very good chance of failing. It does leave a big hole. But how many people, I mean, raise your hand, how many guys do you know pumping 108 uh, foot-pounds of pressure out or whatever? I, my KE's 108 and whatever my minimum wa- mo- momentum was. I can get through there with a field tip through a lot. The, the, the issue you have is how much blood you're going to have on the ground. And, and Frank, you had an animal that you shot three times and didn't open once, did it, uh, on a mechanical. Mm-hmm. So you, there's a lot of pros and cons, and it's extremely – I mean, you go into some camps, and they won't allow uh, mechanicals. They hate them. Um, you talk to other guys, and they go to bear camps. A lot of bear camps want a mechanical, or some bear camps want a mechanical – um, just to get a bigger hole. So how, wh- where I think people need to understand, and, and I'm curious, if you dropped your speed down from 290 to 265, is it worth a guy to shoot a fixed blade, maybe beef up his, his uh, vein length a little bit, and shoot an inch and three-eighths fixed blade at 265, which I think is very tunable. Anything in that 260, 65 range are you better off to do that than be zipping a 290 foot per second potential failure? Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I, I know mechanicals can be successful. Um, there's a ton of guys shooting them, you know, on deer sized animals, a lot of guys can get through there. Um, but to me, there's, there's never, I don't ever see a scenario where it's better to shoot one personally. I just think, let's talk about that. A gut shot, a big hole, is is that Chris Rowe brought this up? Frank's not paying attention. Chris Rowe brought this <laughs> up. A gut shot would be the one that I would say a, a big hole is better in a gut shot than a little hole. But that's where I come to should people shoot a wider cutting diameter fixed blade because then you've got the best of all worlds, right? <laughs> I mean, if if you knew you're going to make a gut shot and can put that certain broadhead on there and close <laughs> range, yeah. um, you might be able to see the future. <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, in general, you don't know, you know, the shot you presented. To me, a fixed blade, you know, very durable, sharp broadhead, just gives you more shot opportunities. If you're going to get, say, a quartering away, 
a long penetration. You know, I just, so I just came from a bear camp. Um, two of us were up there shooting my broadheads and we got two big bears. They're both pass through shots. Um, mine was um, broadside, but his head was twisted around. So it went through both lungs and then it actually went up, cut his windpipe jugular and came out his jaw. You know yeah. how they can just twist around like that. Yep. He went 15 yards and dropped. There was a good amount of blood. Um, my buddy's bear, it was, it was a big Boone and Crockett bear, steep quartering away. It actually went through the ham, exited in front of the opposite side front leg. That bear ran about 50 yards, had a really good blood trail. Um, it was dead in seconds. Um, the next week, five guys came in shooting mechanicals. And a lot of outfitters will say, I want mechanical for that bigger hole on bears. Um, Alfred called me back. He said, none of the five guys got pass-throughs. You know, they're shooting quartering away, hit opposite shoulder, no pass-throughs, just a high entrance hole. And, and he struggled to find those bears. Yeah. So it, it really depends on the shot. Um, yeah. But to answer your question, yeah, if you're just broadside and you get a gut shot, bigger the better on that hole, right? That'd be the only one where I'd say I'd argue with you is, is, is a gut shot. Um, now... Having said that, being being fair, and and again, most of my data probably isn't fair for people to hear because I'm I'm shooting 85 pounds with a I can shoot whatever I want, right? Um, you hit a branch with a mechanical, it's a fucking problem. <laughs> it's a big problem compared to a fixed blade. Um, when I shot uh, my bobcat, um, well, I shot at my bobcat more than once, but the arrow that killed that bobcat, it was 34 yards. And I blew the branch in front of it in half and then blew through the cat. They said, oh, you missed it. And then we looked on the, because it, then it fell out of the tree. It blew through the branch and then zipped through the, the cat itself. I can say in good conscience, the chances of that shit happening with a mechanical are not great. Not only that, you don't want to shoot a cat with a mechanical. It's going to have a hole in it this half the size of its <laughs> body. But uh, an example, though, I have shot through, tried to, to you know, thread the needle with a mechanical. And I, I challenge guys... You don't want to shoot it coming out of your bow open because uh, you probably cut your finger off if you're not careful. But the moment a mechanical opens, all flight characteristics are out the window. So anything it nicks on the way to the target, you're not you're not going to hit it. That's a a big problem, and a lot of things guys don't talk about. I haven't even heard you talk about it that much, but that that is a big issue people need to think about. Yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of things that can go wrong with a mechanical, and that's you know, as a design engineer for for many years doing product development component me mechanism design, you know, we kind of review the design and all the things that can go wrong and try and reduce complexity, reduce things that can happen that can cause failures. And mechanicals, I look at, I just see a lot of failure opportunity. You know, it can, it can open up, it can, um, it can, it can open up too soon. It can not open up. Um, the blades can bend or break or, you know, hit one on, uh, on, on a bone and change direction. Um, so yeah, and, and to me, you know, if say an iron wheel head versus a mechanical, if you look at all your different shot possibilities, you hit a little too far forward in the shoulder, I'm definitely gonna want that iron wheel, right? If you shoot a little back and hit the guts, well, that's a dead animal either way. Mm -hmm. And now it's just, is there enough blood there to find it? Yeah. Um, you know, I think with our size, with that three quarter inch bleeder, um, inch and a 16th main blade, they stay sharp all the way through, you know, the bleeder, um, with that bleeder, I think that cross cut's really important. A lot of guys that are shooting two blades without it, you know, occasionally say, I just didn't get any blood. But I think with that bleeder, 
you know, you, you cause those corners to pull back at the inside of the cross. It kind of drops that tension on the hide. So you get, you're getting something coming out of those holes. Um, and, you know, back out, that animal's hopefully going less than a couple hundred yards. Um, you know, I think it's going to be a lot more shot opportunities are going to be a dead animal. Um, and, yeah, the gut shot is the one that can be difficult to find for sure. Yeah, that's the only thing that Chris had brought up. And that was really a lot more catered towards whitetail hunting and guys. You know, and this this right. goes into the Gillingham effect where he's like, well, if you're just preparing to suck, then hit what you're aiming at. But he's a proponent of, of mechanicals. But he, he's talking about more momentum. One of the main problems is is tuning. Um, and a lot of – I always kind of make jokes that God invented mechanicals cause for people who can't tune because um, that's the – I don't know how many guys I know that grab fixed blades, shoot them, can't hit the target, and then go get mechanicals. They still won't hit the target at far distance because you still have to tune. Um, and so that's where a lot of the big problem lies is where a mechanical, if you take 10 guys, nine can't tune, nine are going to end up with a mechanical. And out of those nine guys, let's say five or six have a success story, a couple have a failure, and one guy doesn't shoot anything, whatever the math ends up being. The, the five failures or the five successes outweigh the two failures, but those two failures weren't so out of the realm of possibility they shouldn't be talked about. They just get outweighed by the five, you know, good things that happened. But I will say, and I like mechanicals or some, they will fail. Eventually, no matter what, a mechanical will fail you without a doubt. And and I've, well, I've had, I've had them fail twice. You've had them fail once and when I say fail, meaning just straight up fail. Now, if you take into consideration how many arrows I've flung in animals, and you take, take nicking a branch a failure where a fixed blade would have hit it, that is much much higher. Because um, you t- threading the needle, you can't see everything in the woods when it's on the way. And I've missed a couple very large elk where that mechanical opened up on the way, where I have no doubt going down, and it's something the size of a quarter of a pencil. That'll open a mechanical, and then you're in deep shit. Where with a fixed blade, from my experience, it zips right through something that size and it kills. It doesn't even hardly affect trajectory. Have you found that to be true? It's very important to hit where you're aiming and have good arrow flight. You know, those two are are way up there on the list. So, and that's why I think a lot of guys have gone to mechanical. They struggle to get their fixed blade to tune well. Um, we've tried to provide a, a fixed blade that'll shoot as well as your mechanical. And I think if if you can shoot a fixed blade out far, you know, then the trade-off is um, mechanical, more things can go wrong. Yeah. Um, it'll give you a bigger hole, more things can go wrong. So your fixed blade, it's, you know, it's not going to open up on you. It's not going to do a lot of those things. If you're a, a, a frontal shot guy, that is, a, a, for me, a, 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 a far better case for a, a fixed blade. Um, when I say that, meaning you can have a lot of variance in, in hit some meatier part of the bone like an iron will and you're going to get through where with a, a mechanical you're you're not probably going to it sucks so much momentum on that front end how much would you say shooting through that main uh for example what would you say that if you're going to quantify how much more penetration it takes to go through the front than the side because the front of that fucker is four to six times harder to peel back or thicker than the the side of the animal would you say that's fairly realistic or do you think it's that much thicker oh yeah big difference and it, it depends on the animal as well but say on an elk 
Yeah, there's there's a lot of thick hide and hair there, and, and you'd be surprised how much force it takes to push through that with a with a wide mechanical. It sucks with a knife, I can tell you that. Just getting, you know, when you're when you're skinning them out, um, right? It's and it, these are the things that people who haven't shot something. Why I'm bringing them up, and and I I've I've shot so much shit with your broadheads. I've seen you know what where the pros and the cons are, and and I say cons really. The only con I would say, which I haven't done, is a gut shot. Um, and I haven't had that issue, but Chris Rowe brought it up, so I figured I'd bring it. And he's a huge proponent of your broadheads. I think he wanted a fight is what he wanted when he wanted an argument. And <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm not going to argue with you on that. I make a bigger hole is a bigger hole. But when you, for guys coming out elk hunting, I have seen mechanicals bounce off of, man, seven or nine animals. Um, those guys are the general dude that may be um, – potentially shooting a 365 grain arrow in in uh in, a, in back east it, for a whitetail setup and it had great success and then they go to an elk or even a big mule deer but an elk um and that blade opens vertically on the rib it will push that rib in and i shit you not it'll bounce that fucker right back out and i've seen it happen many times and at that point, that's the moment I think people sell every mechanical they have and buy a, a fixed blade or, a, or an iron will because you've had you've got this once in a lifetime opportunity, a six hundred dollar tag and however much in fuel, and you come all the way out and you finally actually get your chance, and you're shooting your whitetail setup at it. It hits that rib and bounces back out. That's not going to happen with a with a fixed blade. And one of the reasons where I've kind of started to cater more towards preaching it as I was living in, in freaking la-la land with a compound, cranking out 550, 575 grain arrows at 85 pounds, shooting through whatever I wanted. Now I'm shooting a stick and the rolls are kind of reversed where I'm thinking there's no way in hell I'm shooting a mechanical out of this. And guys get the false impression that they should because of what I was talking about while I was shooting a compound to where now my setup is pretty realistic to a lot of guys shooting 60 pounds and a 400 grain arrow. You're not going to get the penetration with a with a mechanical. Um, and then it causes huge issues. So I guess to sum all that up, I'd say it's pretty easy decision, um, you know, to, to choose a fixed blade um, if you know how to tune a bow because it's, it's just going to out-penetrate. You're going to have less issues with it and less failures um, in comparison. Yeah, and I think it gives you those shot opportunities. Um, I don't think a frontal's a very good shot with a mechanical on an elk, for instance, right? Um, if you, you're probably going to hit some, some bone, you know, ribs or, or whatever. And just when that opens up and that one blade hits some bone, it, it's going to bend or break or something that, that takes a lot of the energy out of it and not go very far. Or it's a very sharp, durable fixed blade. You know, we've had guys take frontals on elk and come out through the ham on the opposite side. I did that shot on a, on a hog um, a few weeks back in Texas. I got a frontal and went all the way through and came out the ham. Yeah. I think if you're going to, if you want those Isn't different shot opportunities. the ham on a hog? <laughs> <laughs> the hind, uh, hind quarter, I guess. <laughs> that, one, that one deer I shot on the way out that one time was through the whole body facing. Mm-hmm. Um and that came out of time, and that was with a stick bow, um, and that straight through the chest and right out the rear yeah, quarter. Yeah, I, I kind of like that shot now. You know, for I didn't consider that a shot for years. I passed up probably hundreds of those shots, but the last oh, we'll get hate four mail just years, from talking about it right now. I can tell you that I'm going to get some kind of fucked up email from it. Well, <laughs> you know, I think it depends on how close they are, what your setup, what your broadhead. You know, yeah. but I think, um, man, it's been a deadly shot for me the last few years. Yeah, I, I've 
shot a, a bunch in and out of the tree stand. We we both have. It's a good. I like splitting the shoulder and the neck on a tree stand. Um, that is not a. That is definitely not a mechanical shot for a lot of different people. So <laughs> we're talking fixed blades here. But when one comes in a deer and he's cornering to you and you can split that shoulder and he's let's say eight yards away and he goes they genuinely a lot of times I look back and he looks back in a way that's pretty good opportunity to to ring one through and you're taking out a lot of goodies sometimes you can hit the heart but generally you know depending on the angle you will get both lungs and you got one hell of a hole out the bottom of it um and all that pressure you know you get high lung shots that's kind of a more of a problem it takes a while for the the thoracic cavity to fill up and then bleed out where you got a hole straight out of the bottom it's just pissing blood straight down there's they can't help but that's a hell of a blood trail. And so I've had good luck with that one too out of a tree stand. But is there anything else you want to cover on this subject? We've kind of beat multiple horses to death here. Um, I thought I might just mention what's new for broadhead since we. Oh, we're going to cover a lot more last. other stuff. I'm just <laughs> talking about uh, on this specific, uh, um, this subject, what people I think really probably should take out of this more than anything on, on my ending notes is learn to tune your bow. And don't be so worried about speed compared to others. I think a good tuned silent bow with a heavy arrow and a fixed blade head is far going to outweigh a loud bow with a mechanical broad head with no momentum zipping at a, a fast, you know, a, a fast clip. I, I've, I've gotten to the point now where I really, really try to encourage guys to keep that speed down for tunability of any head they want to shoot especially if they don't know how to tune because, um, you know, the, the feathers or the veins can, can compensate for some shitty tuning. Um, so, you know, learn to tune your bow and definitely, um, and I'm not just saying this because Bill's here, a fixed blade broadhead is going to be a safer bet, um, you know, as far as any when you hit an animal. you got to search pretty hard before you find a reason to, to shoot a mechanical. They're there, but you definitely, I think, Bill, you could probably argue till tomorrow of, of – uh, why you shouldn't, I guess. And then they're, they're very good arguments. Yeah, no, I, I agree with everything you just said. <laughs> what about you, Frank? You're sounding like me, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Oh, shit. I, I, people keep in mind, this comes from a guy who I shot fixed blades and mechanicals for 15 years, all, all the way back to rocket Wolverines. And that dude, that, you want to talk about shit. Those things are horrible. <laughs> um, and then, uh, kind of seeing the progression of, of fixed blade broadheads kind of coming through um the one thing that rings out in time is is tuning most of the guys that that end up shooting a mechanical or 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 tuning and if you some guys are like me that i just every now and then i take a shot where a, a mechanical made more sense but um and and generally what that was was wind drift and a shot i probably shouldn't have been taking anyway but you can get your heads to tune out to 80 yards relatively easy which is not very common for for fixed blades did you get them to tune to 80 mm -hmm. yeah. yeah so hitting with the with the uh, mechanicals yeah and I, and I know we get a little bit of flack back about talking about farther shots where guys like a little too much manliness and what do they say mere mortal men can't shoot that far but my point is if you can get it to tune to 80 i'm not saying everybody should then that means you should really be able to get it tuned to 50 i mean if you can do it to 80 i mean I anybody think should, else i think people should practice as far as they can so to make the closer shots easier that's what i think at least yeah i know what do you think about that how far do you practice that to uh i practice to 120 yeah okay. <laughs> <laughs> are you from utah <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, but you know i I shoot a lot of animals in that 40 to 60 yard range. Yeah. 
um, you know, I shoot that far. I didn't used to shoot that far, but more and more guys were talking about shooting that far. And so I had to make sure my broadhead would shoot that well that far. Yeah. And um, we've got a lot of guys, um, you know, uh, Tony, Treach, Justin, Davis. Um, I think yourself, didn't you, back when you were a compound guy, I think you told me you shot our broadheads out to 100 or 110 or something like that. I killed a deer at 118 yeah, with it. Yeah, so, um, you know, I I thought when I stepped up to 80 yards, I had really stepped up my shooting game, but I had to, um, you know, step it out to 120 and really do a lot of shooting. But for me, I honestly don't see, I mean, I can hit that target as well with field points as my um, broad hits out yeah. at 100 yards or so. And I get a lot of guys saying that. And, you know, Greg Poole was one that I really, and I really liked that he shot um, – our S125 for his moose hunt because he was shooting it all summer, giving a lot of feedback. And he was showing on his Instagram where he was doing line shooting at 100 yards, just putting them on a line right next to each other. Yeah. So I think if you're, if you can tune a bow and you really can shoot that well, um, these are going to shoot well for you. Well, and I, I just think that, um, how many guys did we get? Remember that one guy, his arrow bounced off the, the deer at 78 yards? You remember that thing? Mm-hmm. He was shooting a 300 and. 90 grain arrow and he's like i need to get a setup where i can shoot deer at 80 and i'm like well what kind of give me your he shouldn't have been shooting into the deer at 80 very few people should um but it was mechanical and it hit and opened and fell out and you know kind of a black eye right you don't want that to happen um and probably dipshits like me are part of the problem talking about farther shots and that now i try to preach obviously getting closer but it's not just you can have a perfect broadhead, which I would say yours is the closest thing to perfection. I'm not just saying that because you're in front of me. You can't get any more anal retentive than Bill. Um, but then if you don't square your arrow, that straight ass broadhead's not ineffective. But you've you've handicapped that little piece of gold you've got on the end of your arrow. You've totally screwed it, right? So now you've got a yep. a straight broadhead spinning crooked. So you want to make sure and square your arrows up, and you want to make sure your bow is tuned now. If your your arrow, if the broadhead is is perfect or about as perfect as you can get, a crooked arrow isn't going to be as magnified compared to another broadhead. But you need to get that square, and then you get the bow to be able to tune, and then you be able to hit what you're aiming at. All of those things are going to take a little bit of elbow grease and and work and everything else. And there are going to be times and specific broadheads, a, a a lot of broadheads on the market. It doesn't matter how square you get your arrow and how much tuning you get, they'll spin crooked. And I don't know how many you've tested, but um, a lot of arrows, the broadheads don't come out of the box. I don't know. Remember all those ones we were spinning that? I mean, it was an attrition rate of like 80% um, that didn't spin straight. And I think Cody found that too from Trad Lab. Yeah, you know, a lot of, um, if they're trying to sell broadheads at retail, you can really only put 2 $3 into all the... Um, materials manufacturing process. So they're being used in low-end materials, a lot of times low-end equipment that it can't hold the tolerances that tight. And I'm not saying everybody does this. I'm just saying if you go, you know, go to the store, sporting a store, and just grab broadheads off the shelf, a lot of them are going to be like this where they're going to have some run out to them by themselves. Um, arrow components as well. A lot of times when you're buying arrows, getting the components with them. Explain run out because I don't think a lot of people... Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so... Um, like when you when you spin your arrow and you look at the tip, and it's it's going run out would be measured. Say if you just measured vertically, what's that point doing as it goes once around? Is it staying at the same vertical height, or is it swinging way up high and then way down low? You know as it goes around. So that that high to, high to low distance is what you'd call run out. 
Right. And and your run out on your broadheads, just to put things into perspective, what is that run out? Yeah, so run out on our ferrules, which we, we use a Swiss CNC machine, our run out is typically about a ten thousandths of an inch. Gotcha. Um, so a thousandths of an inch is, say, the straightness on, on the best arrows. And we're maybe 10 times that good just with our ferrule. And then when we try to have our, our broadhead point, once assembled, you know, be within that thousandths of an inch or so run out. So that when you put, if you get a straight arrow and we align to the ID there, um, and you spin that, that tip of that arrow should be staying within a thousandths of an inch or so to exactly, you know, where it should be mm-hmm. in line. And so if you, if you have an arrow, um, with components, say your, your insert has three thousandths run out cause it's made on an old, old machine that can, that's the best it can hold. And, um, and then your broadhead has a few thousandths more and now you've got the point that's out there an inch. So that's kind of amplified. Maybe you've got 10 thousandths run out, um, so that's like, if, if you spun it, that's how much the tip would go side to side or right. up or up and down. Um, and you start getting in that range and they don't fly very well. Right. They start, they start planing, they start catching errors that are going and, um, and you're going to, your groups are going to open up. And you're, when, when you talk about run out so people can kind of correlate or, or um, uh, kind of bring it all together, if your bow is shooting 240 feet per second, let's say, and you've got four four inch veins you can handle a higher run out and still maintain some form of accuracy the farther you go up you know whatever it is 10 foot per second increments that is is multiplied probably almost like celsius and fahrenheit it never stops the crappiness that it continues um and i didn't explain that very well at all so you bump from 240 to 280 let's say a seven thousandths run out at 240 you might keep it, I don't know, in a paper plate at 40. Would you say that's probably realistic? Yeah, so as you go up in speed, you're, you're increasing your drag. And so if, you're, if your blade is off a little bit and spinning, and sp- not spinning true, but spinning around a bit, you increase that drag. Um, you know, again, drag is velocity squared. So that higher velocity, you're going to have more problems with components that aren't spinning true. Right. Blades that are off a little bit. And there's a lot of factors there. I mean, a heavier arrow helps you. Um, a higher FOC helps you to a point mm-hmm. because um, so it, you know what the way FOC helps you is if it moves the center of center of mass forward on the arrow. So that's kind of your pivot point. Um, and, you know, the rocket science behind that is it creates more stability. If you get that that center point towards the tip. Now your, your veins back there have more of a lever arm to keep it straight. Mm-hmm. And your broadhead has less of a lever arm. So even though you can drag or pushing it off to the side, you know, it's, it's not able to push it off as much as when you get that big, um, you know, lever arm to the veins. You should be filming these hand signs. <laughs> <laughs> what do I do with my hands? Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, and that's kind of what I wanted people to understand is if you go and you buy a grain per inch arrow and it's got three blazer veins on the back end of it and you've got a 14 what is it 12 grain aluminum insert and 100 grain point with a run out of seven to ten thousandths and you're shooting at something at 70 yards you could be three foot left and three foot low real easy um and i I, would you agree or disagree with that yeah i don't know exact numbers but i mean would you it's it's 
pretty freaking eye-opening uh, how far you would be off when you start talking about runouts like that at speeds over 280. Yeah, I did a lot of broadhead testing um, when I was doing some sound testing, actually, with had my setup going 311 feet per second and just bought a bunch of broadheads and shot them. And yeah, I was missing targets. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm only bringing this up because I'm going back to the, the speed days of buying a pack of muzzies. Nothing wrong with a muzzy, right? Aluminum ferro. What were those? Uh, were they 95 or 90 grain? 90 grain four blade muzzies, you know, chopping the arrows down, screwing them on. And we were shooting little Dura veins. And, uh, you know, at that time, block targets were the, a big thing. Right. Couldn't hit the fucking block target at 40 yards, <laughs> right? And, you know, I, I was learning. You know, I didn't know what was going on, and part of it, bow's not tuned. So this is, though, common for, I would say, 80 90% of bow hunters nowadays. You go, you get your bow, and it's tuned when you walk out the door, and then it comes out of tune, and they don't know. And then they go buy broadheads, and they your story was hilarious, the one Frank told us uh, when you first hunted. Screw on the broadhead. Don't even really shoot it. I remember Brian Call telling me when he was hunting, he had one broadhead he could hunt with because he <laughs> knew it hit the dot. That's what he had or two, and and not understanding, you know, tuning obviously. And so when when you talk about when you what what is your slogan as far as uh, you you are as perfect as science allows? How does that what how does that go? Uh, as reliable as science allows. Reliable as science allows. That's true, except. Uh, well, I mean, that's very true. Science at Walmart is not allowing for much perfection. So when you go by... You're relying Walmart, on Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> better pray. <laughs> because you, you're talking about just... It, it's mass-produced and, and no different than like Cordura and backpacks. You have an Asian-made knockoff Cordura. It's mass-produced. And so at the molecular level, the soup it's made of is shit. Okay? And then you go up to like with your broadhead... You have an aluminum ferrule and just the way that they're made and everything else, the tolerances are are far from perfect. Where you were talking about your run, and that's the only reason we're at you, the run out in yours when I checked them was it was pretty ridiculous, right? I was like, well, that's actually quite a bit straighter than any of my straightest arrows. And I'm pretty anal when I cut arrows down as far as cutting them off each end and everything else. So, yeah. okay, well, the broad has not the problem, but the normal guy walks into range, says, I need a dozen arrows, whatever those are, screws them on. And they're shooting a, a blistering speed of 290. The probability of you hitting the target with six arrows with broadheads on them consistently, and I don't mean when I say the target, meaning the dot you're aiming at, I'm talking about the two foot by two foot block at 40 or 50 yards is pretty freaking slim. Um, and I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer. I'm just saying, well, it's, it's the goof troop out there on broadhead day. You watch guys trying to tune broadheads. It's an arrow problem, it's a broadhead problem, it's a fletch problem, it's a tune problem, it's a little bit of everything, some contact problems. You know, obviously you need everything to be as, and this is getting off broadheads a little bit, with as much as you've tested, how accurate does your tune have to be and your runout have to be to hit a target at 120 yards with a broadhead consistently? How close to perfection? At 120, you know, very good. That yeah. arrow's gotta be coming up. <laughs> that arrow needs to be coming up straight. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that being said, a lot of guys are doing it. You, and, oh, there's a lot of and, guys that can do it. And it doesn't take me very long to, to tune a bow, to get an arrow coming off straight, to, to be able to, to hit out there. With the knowledge, it's very doable. Right. I, I think people could um, do themselves a big favor by just learning to the steps to tune a bow. And I talked to a lot of guys that 
I'm like, well, did you did you tune your bow? Have you have you paper tuned? You shot through paper? And I'm like, well, the guys did that at the shop. Um, <laughs> yeah. When I bought it, and you know, maybe that was last year or something. Yeah. So I think, yeah, there's some there's some good videos out there on on how to tune. You guys should maybe go through the steps at some point. Um, but I think if guys just take the take the time to make sure that arrow's coming straight off the bow, um, you know, uh, a lot of fixed blade heads are going to shoot well for them. Yeah, I, I agree, and that's kind of what I was bringing all of that stuff up. And and as I'm as I'm kind of making jokes about this, please everyone keep in mind I'm making fun of myself of of years of of not knowing what I'm doing and the nightmares of in in the end grabbing a mechanical. I mean, when I say nightmares, meaning over and over and over and boom, I grab you can't get a fixed blade to hit, so I grab a mechanical. Not because there was anything necessarily wrong other than me, and I didn't know how to tune. Now. I would say once the string stretched in, you could probably get a bow to tune in inside of an hour. I would say to hit eighty to a hundred yards, pretty, I would, you know, pretty easily. I would think. Um, yeah, I would say so. Um, you know, and and you 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 look at that. If you can get a bear shaft out of a compound to hit it at twenty, that's pretty good. You're getting started, but re- realistically, forty yards. If you you've got to be able to hit a get a bear shaft to hit it forty to be able to get a broadhead to hit it eighty to a hundred. Um, and, and not all, not always, um, you know, and so when you talk about the, the level of, of perfection or, or anal retentancy that you have to get, it's pretty high to be able to hit far. But if, if you're looking at, if you're shooting a 250 foot, 60 foot per second bow and you're only shooting 40 to 50 yards, that's really easy to, to get to hit, right? It's when you get in those super high speeds where it really becomes a, a problem. And really after 300 feet per second, it's not un, it's not impossible, but you're hitting close to impossible to hit a uh, get a fixed blade to tune really far out there. And I don't know, have you had any success with that with super high speeds? I you know I've gone to three eleven feet per second and been able to shoot those well, but it, the bow's got to be tuned at that point. You know right. you can't have your arrow fishtailing coming off. Um, and it it'll depend on on broadheads as well. But guys that have a really well tuned bow can shoot a big long broadhead well. Yeah. At range. I know guys that do it at 80 yards with a with a two inch long broadhead wide cut. And that's pretty tough. But again, the guy I know is doing that, he's he's got a big heavy arrow and it's going slow. And that's a big that makes it way easier. Yeah. Um that heavier arrow, it it takes more force to push it around. Um and yeah, in that lower speed you don't have as much drag on the front. So, you know, those are all factors, but I think in general, people can help themselves out by going with a little heavier arrow, a little slower, you know, down to that 280, 290, or even 270, whatever, feet per second, heavier arrow. You're going to get more retained momentum, better penetration, easier to tune, um, less wind drift. You know, there's a lot of good good things about it. I've had a few uh, midgets get a hold of me lately when I say midgets, guys with like 26, 7-inch draws that are like immediate, like, dude, I'm genetically screwed and i'm like at least you won't have tuning issues like right. you know when you <laughs> like dude i'm not saying that you should feel great about having a 26 7 inch draw but a guy pumping a 480 grain arrow with a a 26 7 inch draw shooting 260 uh with a fixed blade broadhead he's not gonna have any problem going through anything in north in my opinion anyway in, in north america he'll zip through a moose with a fixed blade and i'm like and dude you you don't have to worry about speed to tune, so you're good. You, you don't. It's not even a factor in the equation. So, and and the, I've had the guys call me back and be like, "Yeah, man, you were 
you were right. That's pretty easy to tune. It's it's when you get you know the, the spine of the arrow come becomes another problem too. When you start getting in higher poundage and longer draw lengths, it becomes a little bit more of a pain in the ass to get to tune with that as well. So you know, it's probably worth mentioning too. Is that the biggest problem I see with a lot of guys going for the really high FOC or extreme FOC is um, you know I know I know a few different custom arrow builders where guys come to them and tell them you know what they want and they they check their spine for them and build up their arrows. And what these guys are seeing is guys are coming and saying, I want to have 22% FOC or, you know, they're putting FOC above other things. And the guy will say, with your setup and the arrow you want, you know, you're going to be a little underspined. And they're like, oh, that's okay. I'll just, I'll take it. I want that high FOC. Yeah. And that, that's a bad, that's a bad deal. You know, low, being underspined, you get all this, um, you know, arrow movement coming off the rest. All of a sudden, everything's a lot more critical. Yep. Your rest set up, your release, um, and where you really want to be, you know, optimally spined or even a, a little stiffer spined in my experience. And that's, I think that's really important for people to do, not uh, A, a not stiffer arrow corrects itself faster. And that's been my experience as well. So if I'm going to cater to something, it's going to be slightly stiffer than weaker. And you, you see the slow motion videos. People probably get tired of them, but I get enough people bug me about them. I'll shoot the slow-mo of me with the recurve. When you do that slow motion video and you take the, the paradox, the flex of the arrow on a weak spine bow compared to stiff, that stiff arrow actually corrects itself in almost half the time coming out of the bow, which is what you're saying. And that's huge compared to, well, I've got 3% FOC more in a weak arrow. It takes a while for that to correct, which means that broadhead is not going to be overly accurate compared to I would choose a little bit, you know, less FOC in a more, you know, precise or straighter flying arrow. So I, I've run into the same thing where guys are compromising accuracy in arrow flight for a few percent FOC. I just, I just don't think it's worth it, but we've kind of beat that horse to death on multiple <laughs> podcasts. <laughs> oh Lord. Well, what else do you got coming out with then? I, you got a kind of a pile of stuff in front of us here. Yeah. So, uh, since, since the last July, when we had a podcast, um, we came out with the S100, a solid blade, 100 grain broadhead. That's been our, I think it's currently our top seller. The S125 is pretty close behind. And then actually the V100 and V125 aren't far back behind that either. But, um, you know, there's there's kind of two camps. Some guys like solid blade, some guys like vented. And a solid 100 um, shoots really well at long range. That's that's become really popular. Um, you know, I like... I recommend S125 or having a little more weight up front to a lot of people, but there's different ways you can do it. You know, you can do it with, uh, um, you know, different weight hit inserts, for instance, or other components. So it, it makes the S100 a, a good option there. Um, we came out with a buff series of broadheads, and that's really just our our heavier broadheads with no bleeder blade. Mm -hmm. um, so in our penetration testing way back when, we found out that yeah, just a two-blade no-bleeder was best for maximum penetration. Um, the the negative there is is sometimes you can just have the hole close up. But if you're going up after Cape Buffalo, we had had quite a few guys coming to me saying, hey, I'm heading to Africa, going after Cape Buffalo. What broadhead should I use? And I'd say, really, I haven't made it yet. It would be our maybe our 200 or 250 without the bleeder. Mm -hmm. So we came out with those. We have a, a one fifth, buff 150 now, too, without the bleeder. And... Um, yeah, we've had oh, what, maybe seven or eight Cape Buffalo taken the last month or so with a buff 200, buff 250. Um, but really, for most guys listening, 
go with that bleeder blade. Um, that three-quarter inch cross cut, um, that bleeder blade set back from the tip. So that's another thing too, as I haven't really mentioned, that bleeder location. Um, what we found is if you have, if you've got like a four blade where you're trying to cut two directions at once right up towards the tip, so you go through a shoulder blade, you're trying to make a split in two directions at once. It takes a lot more force there than if you kind of split one way and then that, that main blade is almost all the way through and then you make a little cut the opposite way. We saw that took less force, penetrated further. It's kind of like lifting 50 pounds twice versus 100 pounds, you know, all at once. Um, we saw the same thing with a three blade. A three blade, you're trying to kind of make three, three splits outward at once through a bone and that really reduced penetration compared to a two-blade as well. How much did that buff head without the bleeder, how much, how much of a difference did that make without the bleeder compared to, to with? It depends on what you're shooting through, but I would put it in that, you know, 5 to 10% range. Um, but, you know, if you're going for hippo, Cape buffalo, just the biggest animal, um, I don't know if you know this, but I've talked to a number of professional hunters that say a lot of the Cape buffalo – are really taken with a rifle. You know, mm -hmm. the guy shoots it with a bow, gets poor penetration, they go find the animal and shoot it with a rifle. And so really it's it's all about penetration on there. Mm -hmm. You need to penetrate far enough to get through the vitals quick, quickly and kill that animal. And, and um, we've been able to do that. In fact, we had one guy get a, a full pass through. Um, you know, they got overlapping ribs on both sides. They're an inch or so thick and thick hide. Um, so you want to get through that first side and at least bury into the far side ribs, if not go through. So it's all about penetration on those animals. Guys would, were asking me about that on, you know, does it make sense? And, and I don't even know if it makes sense for a, a female um, or um, maybe an elderly uh, person that is in, in North America um, to, to opt for the, for the two blade without the bleeder. I think the bleeder in, pretty much every case is going to outweigh North American animal to have the bleeder rather than the penetration without, um, you know, just it's a whole different animal when ribs are stacked on top of each other. Not that I'm an expert at doing that, but it seemed that that would be a whole different animal compared to, um, you know, shooting an elk or something with maybe a 40, 45 pound bow. I don't know how much of a difference it would make to, to have, you know, to, to, to get rid of the bleeders for something like, like my wife, for example. Yeah, I, I'd recommend, and I do, I recommend using our broadheads with the bleeder for really everything in North America. I think, you know, I was, I was doing some testing where I had some moose femurs and I was trying to shoot through them, you know, just square on. And this is probably, I don't know, three inch diameter bone or something like that. And I was trying to show that our buff 200 would out penetrate our buff or, or our just S200 mm -hmm. with the bleeder. And I shot the S200, you know, right on center of that. And I expected it to stop in the bone. And then I thought I'd shoot again with, uh, with no bleeder and get through it. But I actually blew all the way through that femur bone with that bleeder blade in there. Mm -hmm. um, and, and to me, that kind of convinced me, yeah, we should use that bleeder blade on, on everything. I think with it being set, set back like that, making that cross cut after the main blade is really taking a lot, um, you know, open that hole up already. I think you get all the benefits of the cross cut with kind of a minimal effect on flight and a pretty small effect on penetration. Gotcha. Frank, you got anything? No. Okay. All, right. all right. What else you got up here? <laughs> the pin there. That's something that people have been pestering me about. Oh, yeah. So we came out with this blade care kit. Um, 
I could talk about tool steels versus stainless. You know, I chose to use a tool steel for the blade. You can just get a much higher um, impact toughness without having stainless steel. Um, a negative to tool steels is that you can get rust spots on them sooner. So you leave them wet in your quiver for a few days. You're going to start having a dark spot. It might turn into a rust spot. Um, it's really just a surface spot. You can, you can scrape it away. But we started selling this little care kit. It's got a little um, die maker polishing stone where you can kind of just polish off any of those dark spots um, or rust spots. You know, they don't, they don't pit. What, we did this um, laboratory corrosion industry standard testing comparing 420 stainless to A2, and it actually was the same number of days until you got pitting corrosion, which would be damaging type corrosion. But you get this little surface spot sooner. Um, yeah, you can just polish those off um, or scrape them off. And then we, we start selling this little blade oil dispensing pen. So you can reapply blade oil. If you know you're going to be um, hunting in the rain, you can just dry off the broadhead end of the day, uh, apply a little more oil if you want, and that will definitely um, keep them from getting rust spots and make them last longer. Now with the, the, the quiver like what I use, whether it be a Selway or a Thunderhorn or Great Northern or whatever, the foam, um, they're a little bit different than some you know compound quivers. Like, Frank, you've got a... Tight spot, right? Mm -hmm. So Frank's is like double snap, not going in any foam. So what I did with mine is um, basically like almost it's petroleum, like a, almost like a lube. Yeah, it's, Vaseline. it's lube, uh, like Vaseline, but it's not Vaseline. But uh, and I used that in the quiver and kind of gobbed it in there, so it was reapplying it every time, and it was soaking in that. Is that a bad idea? Because um, I don't get. I don't have a lot of rust issues with mine, um, and I hunt in pretty rainy areas. Now, you know, I will say I take good care. I mean, I say take good care. I make sure they're dry at the end of the night, right? I don't just let them sit there and rust. But whether they're wet or not, if I leave them applied in that, that foam, it, it seemed to make a hell of a lot of difference. Yeah, you know, um, some guys do use Vaseline or some kind of grease or oil coat, and, you know, any of that works great. Um, but that'll do the same thing. Well, and it's going to get in the foam and by nature reapply. If you coat it on there, I would think that'd do the same thing, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think if you if you coat it enough, it's going to start getting on your foam and stuff too. And I just chose to use a, a food-grade mineral oil um, because it's odorless. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you can eat the stuff too if you if – you, Starve. If you starve. <laughs> you cook with it. Get some extra calories. <laughs> with On that though, with um, – because uh, you can put it on knives or anything that's going to be made of tool steel or whatever that would corrode. With that, though, do you just suggest applying it, you know, once every few days or, or, or what, what's kind of, obviously, the weather depending, but in, you know, relatively damp conditions where it's raining every day, is that something they should apply on every day? No, you know, so what I typically do is our, our, our blades come coated with mineral oil from, the, from our factory. Mm -hmm. We coat them um, before we send them out. So, Typically, um, you know, I'll, I'll use them for months. Typically, without doing anything, um, if I'm if I'm hunting in the rain, I'll typically just dry them out during the hunt. A lot of my hunts are backpack hunts, and I don't have anything along. I just dry them after rain that day, put them back in my quiver. When I get when I get home, is typically when I'll clean them up um, and reapply reapply some blade oil. I think with this with this little kit, it's light enough. This pen's small enough. I'll probably take this kit with me, and if um, in the field. It's raining pretty heavily, and you're hunting in the rain all day. I'll dry them out and, and reapply the stuff um, as it rains. But I'd say typically you don't need to do anything. You know, I've, I've had broadheads sitting out in my barn that I've used for practice heads for years. 
that aren't getting in the direct rain, but they're getting high humidity, and none of those have rusted. I, I have um, 20, I've shot a lot of shit with your heads, May 28 sitting on the, you know, I use them for practice heads now, I should probably send them back to you. Um, when you had brought up the corroding thing a few weeks ago, um, the guys were had questions about that, or I might have read it online, I cleaned all the dirt and shit off mine because, you know, I kind of just, as bad as it sounds, I just kind of put them in a box when I'm done with them. And, and I use it help to help figure out how many animals I've shot with them, too, just an idea. Um, none of mine pitted. Um, there's there's brown, there's corroded spots. But I kind of went and checked just to make sure so when people ask or bring that up, because um, some of them were just pretty piss poor taken care of to be honest with you you know i shot them and used them for practice heads they hit the dirt bank by my house so it has to take a pretty good amount to make them pit because if none of those were pitted and that was about the worst care you possibly could because i use them for practice plates and i just figured the ferrules were straight that i would either give them to you and have you sharpen the blades or just replace the blades at what point how how much if you could try and quantify it does it take before it even before i mean because people talk about it's corroded it's going to affect penetration i can't imagine that you could actually quantify that but how long would it take <laughs> no it's a it's a surface um you know it's a surface oxidation is what it is so it, it's just something that's, that's kind of adding to the surface or coming to the surface you know i've i've taken broadheads where i i ran them under the water and then wrapped them in wet paper towels five days in a row Mm -hmm. And to the point where I can get these spots and then just, they come off and there's no, you know, pit or bump there. So it's, and before you get pitting, we, we did the same, we did just as well as stainless steel. You know, stainless steel can rust as well. Right. It just takes a little longer. So no, there, there's no, there's no penetration effect. It's more of a surface effect. Somebody brought that up to me and I'm like, really, how'd you test that? Because I wouldn't know how you would. I'm. And I'm like, if you fire in a ballistic gel, you're telling me if you fire one that's corroded and one that's not, I'm going to be able to see a, a difference in the ballistic gel. I, I was having a hard time believing that. And, and this is well before, um, uh, you know, with iron wheel broadheads coming out, it just seems I can understand that you'd want to keep them, you know, lubricated. And there's sense to um, maybe there's more penetration if, if, uh, if, if you lubricate that head. I don't know how you'd quantify that either, but if that makes you feel warm and fuzzy, by all means, go ahead and, and do it. And I think that was an Ashby thing, wasn't it? That he lubricated the, the blades of some, some type? Or that might have come in afterwards? Because I know there's other broadhead manufacturers that bring up that, and I have never done that. So I've some, never... some <laughs> heads are plain carbon steel. Right. And so this is a tool steel. It has 5% chromium, um, vanadium, and has some alloying elements. So it has it has way better corrosion resistance than a plain carbon steel. Mm -hmm. But broadheads that are plain carbon, those those can rust just out in the, you know, just sitting in your desk, basically. Um, and I think it's those when they've gotten wet or, you know, let, we're in the dirt or blood where the edges can actually corrode, and then you have edges that aren't sharp anymore. That's when you can probably see a penetration difference. I could see that for sure. That's where I was kind of curious on um, you take a uh, – this is off the subject of corroding in general, but some, some with corroding, if you take a 440C, um, which um, I'm not overly large fan of, um, with a 440C, what are the biggest neg negative sides on like a 440C? What would you say? Yeah, so 440C, it's typical to a, a stainless blade steel. You know, 440C, S30V, 154CM, uh, maybe D2. Well, D2 is, I think, 12% chromium, so technically not stainless. So stainless steel is 13% or more 
chromium. Um, if it's a th- if it's a thick enough blade, a knife blade, and you're not doing impacts, they work pretty well. You can get a pretty sharp edge on them. Um, the negatives are you, they're not very tough. So I've, I've I've over the years tested a lot of blades where I'm. So our our, um, our test machine for every lot of blades we make, we break we break a couple. So um, we set up and we push down with this instrument machine. So we measure force versus velocity, and we look at measure the force to break it, and then we get this force over time. So we get kind of the area under that curve is the energy to break it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we look and see how did it, is, was a brittle failure or not. And what I see with these stainless blade steels is you get very little deflection, and then they explode. Mm-hmm. Very brittle failure. We just did one last week. Uh, new broadhead is coming out. I want to check it out. And when that broke, it left a dust cloud. Mm-hmm. And pieces were everywhere, and we couldn't find them all. And so what that means is if you get a, a high impact on a bone to where you, it's going to want to flex that blade, it's just going to snap. Um, whereas with tool steel, we can get – it can absorb a lot more energy before it breaks, be a much higher force. In general, I'd say we're getting three times or more on the force just to break it and then a lot more energy. And when we do finally break – it just kind of goes kink, and it does. It, it kind of bends a little bit, which is amazing to me. A 60 Rockwell C hardness blade that will actually not have a brittle failure. Um, so that's the difference you get in a tool steel versus a stainless, and that's why tool steels are used for metal stamping dies, punches, things like that. Well, and and this is kind of I was asked this question because um, I fire things under rocks for testing because it's a redneck way to do it, and and I guess. Not that anybody wants to go buy broadheads and fire them into rocks for testing. Um, and we, we'll film some of this once I get moved. What you'll basically see with, um, what, like a, what you brought up when you get into the stainless, when you hit a blunt force uh, impact on a rock, it just breaks in half is what happens. Right. Um, and, and, and in your case, this is out of a recurve, so it's probably much more aggressive <laughs> out of a compound. Um, and it, it just snaps in half. If you had a side impact, meaning potentially a leg bone, which happened with a 440C a few times with me, it will shear off. And you could probably explain it way better than I can. It will shear off potentially one whole side of the broadhead, um, or it can. Meaning, if you just fired a rock at the edge, where it impacts the rock offset of center, so it's not blunt impact straight on, it's more of a side impact, depending it will just shear off half of the broadhead. Is that kind of what you found and what you're saying or what you've seen? Yeah. If, if the impact, you know, energy is high enough this, that that blade needs to start to flex, it's just going to break. Um, yeah. And, yeah, it might shear off one side. You know, a lot of different ways it can it can break. But there's very you get very little elongation before failure. So very little very little deflection before it's just going to come apart. Yeah. And you, you yeah, but much better word usage than, than I have. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of what I had found. And it's, it's certainly worse, um, on some than others. And as you kind of get in, into a, uh, applied apples to apples on an animal where it really kind of comes into play is, is a leg bone. Um, the rib, Maybe not quite as much. The leg bone is where, if I think, if people shot at a, a elk leg bone, uh, maybe their eyes would be open like mine were of the potential repercussions in a hunting situation 
of of what will happen. Uh, anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think on on most shots, you know, where this isn't going to come into effect. If you shoot behind that shoulder, hit some ribs, um, those those harder um, stainless blade steels are going to do fine. And I think a lot of guys have seen that. There was there's a you know popular. Um, stainless blade steel head out there which a lot of guys have had good success with and then they'll hit like a shoulder bone or a leg bone and the thing will shatter and and that's when that's when you see the issue yeah and i randy cooling and denny i think i know who you're talking about and randy and denny had had issues with that they're like huge spokesmen that, that it's not okay because they had it happen on a african animal and it snapped in half and they wouldn't warranty it if you can believe that yeah. um but <laughs> um when that happens though having hit a few leg bones myself and deviated around it and st- still got a kill if you hit the edge of that leg bone and it and it and it hits it and it's just enough to maybe throw your arrow flight off and keep going you may be okay when it shears off that it it really causes some major issues not only with momentum but also trajectory, um, I think more so than if you hit it, skip off, and keep going through the animal. Once that shears off, it can cause a major cantilever effect to where it really, it could zip off going in the wrong direction. Um, and I don't know if you found that, but that's off of not as much testing on leg bones, standing up in a in a laboratory, more just winging at arrows and shooting a lot of animals. It can um, it, it can make the arrow go, I mean, 90 degrees different than it was going because of that cantilever and then you have a half of a blade that's not sharp anymore because it snapped off so yeah it can it can redirect the arrow it also just takes a a lot of energy to make that break so it it just about stops your arrow right there just because all the energy loss yeah no for for sure um what else do you got there's anything else you want to oh yeah so we got this uh ultralight knife now you know i i worked for years going through five different steels and then optimizing a2 steel, um, our heat treat process to get the high hardness, high toughness. And at the same time, um, I wanted an ultralight knife that weighed less and held an edge better. So I've spent a couple years working on this. It's a one ounce knife where I'm using the same A2 tool steel, cryogenic treatment, triple temper um, to get the high high hardness, um, great sharpness, edge retention, but yet have it down in one ounce. And with the A2, it has the higher toughness. So I was able to remove more material and I think still have, you know, plenty tough enough uh, knife. In a, I think in a seven inch um, knife, it's about the lightest one out there, I believe, at one ounce. Yeah. Um, you know, what's a little new here is I added sharpened top edges, one at an angle, one straight. And the, uh, and what I do there, you know, some guys like to have that gut hook up on top to, you know, rip through hide. What I found is it you know it works once and it's really hard hard to resharpen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've kind of done that with these top sharpened edges where there's finger grips that go out to them. You can put your thumb on top, and I use that to uh, to make all the cuts through the hide with a top edge. You know the hair and hide is what really dulls a knife. So if I can use that top edge to make all the hide cuts, the belly of the knife stays sharp um, to where I can skin and, and debone a couple of animals with it that way. Mm-hmm. So I was really going for a really light knife for backpack hunting that would would get me all through uh, an elk, you know, skinning, quartering, deboning, even caping. Now, did you make a sharpener for that as well? I, yeah, we have a, a carbide sharpener mm-hmm. that's, um, it's actually, you gave me, you told me to do that, right? Yeah, I did, but I didn't want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> 
I like those little things for touching them up. It's, it's super handy in the field. It doesn't weigh anything either. Yeah, you know, I'd always been, um, you know, I like flat stones, um, set at angles for regrinding, redressing edges. Um, and we, we sell this double-sided flat stone, but a lot of guys don't, they're not very good at trying to hold that angle by hand. Um, and to have, you know, a bigger knife kit that holds angles for you is not a great option to the backcountry. So you'd mentioned just using that carbide sharpener. So I, you know, I had some made, I tested them for a while and yeah, they worked pretty good. Um, I could take a, a broadhead that had been shot into targets hundreds of times, the dullest one I had, and within a couple minutes, um, getting it shaving hair again. So it's just a couple pieces of carbide set at 20 degrees per side. Um, and so it's the right angle to resharpen either our, our knife or our broadhead blades. Mm -hmm. Um, and so if you're just, yeah, with a knife, if you've just, um, taken care of an animal, you can touch it up and, you know, so after, um, I had the outfitter do my bear, you know, kind of with my instructions of how I want him to use it. And, um, when he was all done, I could still, I could still shave hair with a main blade, but not, not really that well. I mean, I could cut hair, but you know, some of it was still there and, Within about a minute of running it through that sharpener, I could just shave a patch off like nothing again. So I think that's a good option too. That only weighs a half ounce. Yeah. So that plus the knife is a good backcountry combo to kind of touch up the edge and go on multiple animals. Yeah, that's that's why I, I had kind of bugged you about it because usually in my um uh you know my my archery kit or whatever I'll try to have one of those in there and it just made sense to have one for your. Your knife, it's not going to, if you take a giant chink out of it, it's certainly not going to fix that. But as far as just caping out an animal and then getting it shaving sharp, usually like 60 seconds, they're ready to go. It doesn't, it doesn't take very long. So, I mean, for, for if you're a uh, sharpening, um, handicapped like myself, where you actually have to have something to help you hold the angle, those are great because you don't have to have that and it will, it will get it shaving sharp again, even if it's super dull. One thing I would say about that though, is with that carbide, it's so hard um, you want to push pretty lightly on it. You can, if you go and push hard into it, you know, I've, I've made a stroke on it kind of hard, looked at under a microscope, you're smashing a big burr over. I mean, I mean, it's under a 200 X microscope, but you're pushing a burr. We have those here too. <laughs> <laughs> you're, uh, if you're pushing hard, you're smashing that edge over, or pushing a burr over. So you don't want to push hard, you know, not a whole lot more force than the, than the knife itself. Mm -hmm. Um, and just more strokes, you know, pull it through 10 or 20 times, you know, check, is it shaving hair? If not do another 10 or 20. So lights, light pressure, more strokes, and that'll work well for you. I think you got anything else there? That's about it. Um, we kind of touched on the components. You know, I think if you're happy with your component system, that's great. Um, but I, I've I really gotten to like this uh, hardened steel hit insert, broadhead locating directly to the ID of the arrow, and then a hardened steel sleeve. I think, you know, there, there's some outserts and things that are pretty strong, stainless ones, where you've got this really strong thing out in front of the arrow, but that connection point is kind of the weak point. Whereas I think if you can... You know, you really need that strong connection point. So if you get hardened steel, carbon fiber, hardened steel kind of kind of a lamination or a composite, and you're building a broadhead right into it, that's really become my favorite for um, very good alignment, spinning true, and, and being pretty tough. Gotcha. Where, think, where can everybody find this stuff at uh, your website and everything? Yeah, our website's um, ironwelloutfitters.com. You can follow us on Instagram um, at ironwelloutfitters. 
Cool. Frank, you got anything to add? I don't, no. Cool. That's well, very Bill, interesting. We appreciate you coming down here and chit-chatting with us. We were going to talk about goat hunting, but we didn't talk about shit about goats. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll do that after. <laughs> I, I brought two of my old Kafaro packs down, too. I need some replacement parts for so maybe we can talk about that too cool no that sounds good all right well everybody take it easy thanks for tuning in thanks guys